0: This is The Guardian.
1: Hello, Jonathan Friedland here. We're going to run this week's episode of Politics Weekly America here for you. But please, if you enjoy the show, make sure to search for Politics Weekly America on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and then hit that subscribe button. And you need to do that even if you already subscribe to Politics Weekly UK. I'll be there with all the news from Washington every Friday. Thanks so much. Welcome to Politics Weekly America. I'm Jonathan Friedland. The war in Ukraine is obviously devastating for that country, but it is reverberating around the world. The United States matters particularly because it is still the leading Western power. So how will the war in Ukraine shape the political dialogue in the United States? And perhaps more important, how will the political divisions on this question in the US shape the conduct of the war? To discuss all this, I wanted to speak to Alexander Vindman. He's not only a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel, but also the former Director for European Affairs for the United States National Security Council, the NSC, which sits inside the White House, who many say was the decisive factor in the impeachment of Donald Trump first time around back in 2019. It was Alexander Vindman who was on that now notorious phone call between Donald Trump and his Ukrainian counterpart, Volodymyr Zelensky. It was in that call where Donald Trump asked the Ukrainian leader to investigate the man Trump knew was going to be his rival in the 2020 election, namely Joe Biden. In that call, Donald Trump was putting the squeeze on the Ukrainian leader, asking him to dig up dirt on Biden, and in return... He promised he would release military aid that had already been approved by Congress for Ukraine, military aid that would have helped it defend itself against Russia. In choosing to testify before Congress about what he had heard on that call, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman faced the wrath of a Trump administration that he says was hell-bent on getting revenge. But for him, this was also very personal because Lieutenant Colonel Vinman was born in Ukraine when it was still part of the Soviet Union. He moved with his family to New York when he was a toddler. So I began by asking him how it felt watching events unfold in his native country these last few days.
0: I think in a way it's awakened something that I didn't even know was there. I left as a toddler and I grew up in the United States. So my thoughts are always uh, first with US security and what this catastrophe means. This war between the largest country in the world and the largest country in Europe, and how that could drag in the United States. But I also have walked these streets, uh, Kharkiv, which is being devastated, and Kiev, constantly under attack. And I feel um, sorrow for, for the people there. But uh, on a kind of a human level, I also feel bad for the Russian soldiers. They, they've been sent into the meat grinder by their leadership, their callous leadership with little understanding of what they were going into. Uh, That's the kind of government that the Russian people have been subjected to for for too long.
1: I think a lot of people will be struck hearing that you have empathy for the Russian conscripts as well as for those uh, Ukrainians who are currently under fire.
0: Jonathan, I I gotta say something though. I'll tell you, uh, you know, I'm a military
1: officer. I served
0: for 20 years. And as much sorrow as I feel for the Russian soldiers, the more successful Ukraine is, the more successful Ukrainian military is in destroying the Russian armed forces with the loss of life on the Russian side, the quicker this comes to an end. And that's that's what's necessary.
1: No, that's understood. And just before we leave this part of it, in terms of family, do you still have family in Ukraine? And if so, are you in touch with them? Do you know how they're doing and where they are?
0: I really don't have much in the way of family. I, every time I go back there, I make it out to see my uh, mother. She passed away when, when we were toddlers. She was she died of cancer before we fled as refugees. And my grandmother. Um, and I try to hunt down my uh, grandfather's uh, gravestones. I have friends there. I mean, I, I right now I'm in, in steady contact with with some folks, uh, including you know, former cabinet officials from from Ukraine that I've built relationships with since serving in the White House. And so the roots there are tenuous, but I still, there's a connection to that uh, country.
1: And, and as you've explained, a lot of your connection with the country partly came through your work in in as a policy expert and in, in the capacity that you served as Director for European Affairs for the United States National Security Council on the NSC. In that role, you were part of the American delegation present at the inauguration of the man who is now hailed around the world as a hero, and that is President Volodymyr Zelensky. Just give us a sense from, because you're one of the few people who had, you know, close-up contact with him. I don't know if you spoke to him yourself, but just what you made of him back then, and whether you had any hint, any inkling that this man had it in him to be what he is now, which is a wartime leader who's won the admiration of the world.
0: Yeah, I think I did. Uh, I'll say that You know, I I, um, had to at times question my uh, faith in him. He had a trying tenure initially, and a part of that is because of the Ukraine scandal that made Ukraine uh, and Zelensky radioactive. But there's a a picture floating around of me standing in front of him. He's not a very tall, tall guy. Mm -hmm. uh, And we're just kind of um, we're having this this conversation about how fates could have been reversed and I could have stayed there and he could have been the refugee overseas and Talking, he was talking about his family that ended up in Germany, and so it was it was it was a good moment. But I had several interactions with him. There was definitely a desire to do something, uh, to work with him and help uh, nurture his his new government, uh, his new party, to realize the the aspirations of the Ukrainian people. But that's still far a far cry from you know what we've seen displayed. Uh, there was something you know there was a glimmer of that kind of uh, ability. But now under this test, he's uh, you know he's he's risen to be like a Churchillian uh, type figure, uh, not just leading Ukraine, leading the world actually uh, in the fight for democracy and, and freedom.
1: So let's just go forward to the point which you've referred to, which is this tangle with the former president, the president you. New served when you were on the NSC, and particularly to a moment on July the 25th, 2019.
0: President Trump just tweeted that he is going to authorise the release of the transcript of his conversation with the president of the Ukraine that's at the centre of this burgeoning scandal that now has Democrats talking about the possibility of impeaching the
1: president. Where President Donald Trump, then president, and Volodymyr Zelensky, president of Ukraine, were on the phone to each other and you were on that call uh, just just tell us, explain to you, because a lot of people won't realize how these calls between heads of government work, how it was you ended up being on that call, and then just tell us what it was about that call that troubled you. My role was to um,
0: nurture this relationship, if possible, with Russia, in this case with Ukraine. And this call was designed to be a congratulatory phone call, kind of a perfunctory, straightforward President Trump was supposed to call President Zelensky and say, congratulations, you pulled off a miracle. And now for the first time in Ukrainian history, you have a uh, in a parliamentary system, you have the majority block. Now, I went into this call with my eyes wide open. I didn't you know, I wasn't I was aware of the uh, trouble brewing and the um, nefarious actors kind of circling and, and casting a shadow over the Ukraine relationship over claiming Ukraine corruption, claiming it was Ukraine that interfered in US elections in 2016. But my job was to uh, continue to advance the US national security policy. I did what I thought was was right. And I ended up listening in on this phone call and the the president attempted to extort a uh, investigation into an American citizen, a political rival in an effort to steal a, a election.
1: And the the the, the 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 political rival being Joe Biden, of course. Yes. So you decided that you couldn't keep quiet about what you'd heard on this call between the two presidents in which, as you say, one, Donald Trump, tried to extort the other, Volodymyr Zelensky. Were you prepared for what then came next? Because you then testified to the House of Representatives. It became a, an, an iconic image of their of you in uniform raising your hand to take the oath and answering their questions.
0: Dad, my sitting here today in the US Capitol talking to our elected officials is proof that you made the right decision 40 years ago to leave the Soviet Union and come here to the United States of America in search of a better life for our family. Do not worry. I'll be fine for telling the truth.
1: And it was that testimony that many people believe prompted House Democrats to impeach Donald Trump that what turned out to be the first of two impeachments i mean the, you know you were in your i think not yet even mid 40s um this was a big moment did you realize what you were getting into you know uh,
0: to be prepared for something like that no i i wasn't but i was prepared to do the right thing and i was prepared to follow through i had already voiced concerns when kind of senior administration officials more senior to me uh, had attempted to kind of Advance this this quid pro quo, this this extortion scheme. There was absolute unanimity from government that uh, we should be supporting Ukraine, we should be supporting President Zelensky, we should be providing the Ukrainian armed forces with military assistance, and the only obstacle was coming from the office of the president. And it kind of came to a head in that phone call. So all, all I did was really report what I had witnessed and i understood the ramifications almost immediate i mean i guess i understood them immediately because there's this line in, in in my book that i, I reference i walk into my twin brother's office immediately afterwards he was an attorney chief ethics official on the national security council and i say i close the door i say eugene if what i'm about to tell you ever becomes public the president will be impeached did nobody any good to have this uh, come up in the out in the public eye if the president had received the proper counsel in reverse course, uh, assistance would have flown, Zelensky would have gotten his meetings, and we wouldn't have had a harmed relationship with Ukraine, one that actually exposed Ukraine to vulnerability to Vladimir Putin to con- conduct this war that he's doing now. It was, it was follow through, it was putting one foot in front of the other and doing, doing the right thing, stringing enough of those doing the right things together uh, to kind of navigate a, a, a nearly impossible situation.
1: I really followed that. But now you are outside the military, and I know it was your beloved career. I mean, it was a cherished career. Does any part of you regret speaking out the way you did?
0: If I hadn't spoken out, Zelensky would have eventually buckled.
1: So he would have sort of started suggesting there was a question mark over Biden's conduct that needed to be investigated.
0: Right. So um, I think President Zelensky would have acted principally which means that he would have said uh, he would have announced a transparent investigation into um, alleged wrongdoings that uh, President Trump had um, accused President Biden of. And uh, you can't fault him for it. His country was at war with Russia and he needed U.S. support to safeguard his country. Uh, But uh, he would have followed through on that and then there would have been an investigation into then Vice President Biden. But that's all really uh, Donald Trump needed. Uh, Donald Trump didn't really need you know, uh, smoking gun. He just needed uh, the cloud of an investigation looming to tarnish President Biden. So that's why it's hard for me to to regret that. But I do have regrets in that right now there's a crisis that I'm very well equipped to plan to manage and I could have I could be I could have been working in government uh, trying to help the U.S. government safeguard itself and uh, I'm not doing that now.
1: I can sense the frustration that that would bring. Well, let's imagine you were in the room advising Joe Biden. Let's talk about the current situation. What would you be suggesting the US administration should be doing uh, right now? And I suppose, actually, related to that, I mean, how do you think Joe Biden is handling this right now? Russia is the biggest country in the world. If we were to
0: achieve our objectives there, our aspirations there, of course we could accomplish a lot. But there was almost consistently there was little, little chance of doing so there so why wouldn't we ap- apply our resources to places like Ukraine where we have a willing partner and that's what that's what the biden administration is looking at the situation and they're still hanging on to wishful thinking that this is going to stay limited that you know we could avoid a, a death spiral so in that regard uh you could see where i'm going that there's we we need to do more we're not doing enough
1: one of the things that some ex military people on both sides of the Atlantic, have at least been raising is the notion of a no-fly zone being enforced by NATO, even if that means shooting down Russian jets that dare fly over Ukraine. Others say that could trigger a nuclear confrontation. Where do you stand, for example, on that?
0: I'd probably go closer to the latter uh, than the former. As much as I would love to um, implement a no-fly zone, I think it's a dangerous prospect uh, it's something that you know we you have to remember in war options narrow all those things that we could have announced beforehand we could have announced a provision of more lethal aid we could have given the things to ukraine like coastal defense cruise missiles to warn off these ships that are now looming off of, off the coast of odessa we could have uh provided more advanced capabilities but now in war when you do that the risks are higher and a no no fly zone i think would be uh, escalatory and it may even be unnecessary because Ukraine is managing rather rather well on its own. What they really need is equipment they need unlimited equipment they need a lend lease program that gives them air power, gives them uh, air defense capabilities, it gives them long range strike in the form of uh unmanned aerial vehicles. We are really too restrained with what we're providing them
1: and you would have those supplies go through a NATO member like Poland, for example absolutely. And what if Poland or a country like it said, "Mm, that's too risky for us, because then we will be in Vladimir Putin's sights? That's not, that's not highly unlikely,
0: because NATO Article 5 is is not something that Russia wants to tangle with. They understand the concept of mutually assured destruction. They're not suicidal. And uh, as poorly as their military is performing right now on the battlefields of Ukraine, they certainly do not want to tangle with NATO. I mean, we have to remember that the longer this goes, the more a chance there is for a spiral here that, you know, incrementalism suggests that that Putin is going to ratchet up, not ratchet down. And as he continues to ratchet up, the possibility of a a bigger escalation grows. So the sooner that his forces are destroyed, the sooner he, he is unable to achieve his political aims through the military or military objectives the sooner he goes to uh, some sort of compromise and accommodation, less than maximalist objectives with regards to uh, negotiations. And that's really our way out of this.
1: Our focus on this podcast is always US politics. And the relevance of that here is the extent to which Uh, the American public and American political class would be united behind the kind of hard line against Vladimir Putin that you're setting out there. On the Republican side of the aisle, you saw this close up because of the consequences in terms of what happened to you. But you see now a Republican movement that contains elements, at least, that are, well, in some cases, not condemning of Vladimir Putin, in some cases, actually cheering him on. Uh, And I'm just wondering what you make of that, just to, I mean, give you a couple of examples. But famously, Tucker Carlson on Fox News did a monologue just a few days ago saying, has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? Does he dogs? Is he trying to snuff out Christianity? No. In other words, is Vladimir Putin really my enemy, said Tucker Carlson. And you've got Donald Trump himself praising him for being savvy what do you make of that? It's half of the American political, uh, you know, sphere—the Republican Party—and it's got this element running through it. Well, uh, this is going to sound a little
0: uh, facetious and and maybe a, a pointed, but Jonathan, I think your your information is dated, and I'll explain uh, why I say that. I, I enjoy the opportunity to punch back on Tucker Carlson, you know, just about uh, probably more than anybody else. Same thing with Donald Trump, and uh, they are going to have to bear the costs of their cheerleading for for Vladimir Putin in the days and hours leading up to this catastrophe not just uh, a humanitarian catastrophe for the Ukrainian people but a potential catastrophe for US national security and they're going to pay for that what you have in the hours and days after the war started is a 180 degree reversal and Donald Trump in the in the first day or two still uh you know said something positive about uh Putin, but now he's gone uh, in the exact opposite direction. And so is Dr. Tucker Carlson. Uh right now, I guess my my urgency, and I spoke uh publicly about this a couple of times, is to uh get unity around support to Ukraine and set politics aside at least temporarily for this urgent US national security interest. Uh there'll be a time, and that time is not too far off, in the coming months when the when the situation uh, starts to ease a bit in Ukraine, where those Republicans will lie in the hole they dug for themselves.
1: Yeah, I mean, the. I take your point about the reversal. I suppose my question was whether if you've got people there in senior positions whose opposition to Putin is so thin and skin deep and sudden, what kind of basis does that give President Biden for acting strongly when one party is actually uh, only very recently, a convert to the cause of taking on Putinism.
0: I would say that there were uh, the, the the support for Putin was thin. The Republican Party has uh, uh, traditionally been the bulwark against uh, kind of authoritarianism, but uh, for political expediency, either out of enticement of getting support from Trump or accolades from Trump, or fear of being uh, denounced, they supported Putin against their you know their better angels. So I think that's that's true but um there might be some truth to that but I think political expediency now demands that they try to start digging digging themselves out of this hole and converge around support for Ukraine.
1: We always ask our guests on the podcast a what else question, something uh, a bit different. Uh this week the house committee investigating the January the 6th uh, attack on the US Capitol, January 6th, 2021. Uh, This week, they issued a major filing claiming that they believed or setting out their belief that Donald Trump violated a whole slew of federal laws in order to overturn the 2020 election, including obstructing Congress, defrauding the United States. It's quite a serious development saying that the former president violated the law to overturn Uh, the election. What do you make of that? That's um, important. And the follow through on that
0: from the Justice Department is going to be critically important. I think part of the reason, just like Vladimir Putin, has acted with impunity, unaccountable to anyone. I think Donald Trump has also been emboldened by the Republican Party over the uh, past five years and throughout his uh, adult life as a corrupt businessman that didn't really get held accountable because he, it was too hard, or you know, he didn't. People didn't want to be subject to legal retaliation. Whatever the case might be, it's accountability that's that keeps our system working properly. And this is a step towards accountability. You know, I, I right now I'm, I'm frankly laser focused on on uh, my my core competency, which is uh, national security and, and foreign policy. But this is a good development.
1: Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. And that is all from me for this week. There will be a link to Alexander Vindman's book here. Right matters on today's episode description on the Guardian website. Now, I know I sound like a bit of a broken record, but another reminder that if you're enjoying the show, do search for Politics Weekly America wherever you get your podcast. You need to do that, even if you subscribe to the Politics Weekly UK feed. You need to have a look for Politics Weekly America. Wherever you get your podcasts, and once you've found us, do hit subscribe. But for now, it is goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens, the executive producer, Maz Eptehaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland, and thanks, as always, for listening.
0: This is The Guardian.